This court has made momentous decisions in the last few years, certainly in the last two decades, in the name of an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. And the only originalist interpretation of the Constitution available to them in this case is that Donald Trump cannot run for president of the United States. That's my colleague Jill Lepore. Jill has written extensively about the origins of a small, rarely cited clause in the Constitution that prevents public officials from taking office again if they have aided or led an insurrection. That clause is now at the heart of a new Supreme Court case that could remove Donald Trump from the ballot in Colorado and in other states. And so I wanted to ask Jill about the history and stakes at play in this case and what the results could mean for Trump and for the country. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. Donald Trump is facing a number of trials right now, so just to calibrate our audience a little bit, this particular case stems from a decision made by the Colorado Supreme Court in December that decided that Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot in that state. Jill, what are the origins of that Colorado decision, and how did this end up all the way at the Supreme Court? So after January 6, 2021, the House impeached Trump and the Senate quite narrowly failed to convict him of impeachment. So then a series of other efforts were taken to hold him accountable. The Colorado case is one where the state Supreme Court decided in favor of those voters who had sued to get Trump's name removed from the state ballot. The decision was stayed such that it needed to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. But this decision that the Supreme Court will make will affect all 50 states. So what does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually say on this matter? So Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is known as the Disqualification Clause. People are more familiar, undoubtedly, with other sections of the 14th Amendment, including the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the Birthright Citizenship Clause. Those are the ones you learn about in school, the disqualification clause. I don't even think it was it was mentioned. And now it's like the center of like political, yeah. legal and household it's really, debate. It's really not. So remember, the Constitution was ratified with a promise of amendment. So the Constitution is ratified with the promise that there will be added to it a Bill of Rights, which is what the first 10 amendments become known as are essentially part of the initial ratification deal. Then there are a couple of amendments that pass before 1804. And then the Constitution is not amended for a long time. But the Civil War is a constitutional crisis of the gravest possible nature. And it leads to what are known as the Civil War and Reconstruction Amendments. There are three amendments passed in fairly quick succession. The 13th Amendment, which ends slavery, the 14th Amendment, then the 15th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote regardless of race. Historians consider these three, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, together. They're all designed to deal with the problems created by the Civil War. So the 14th Amendment was proposed by Congress really immediately after the end of the war. The war ends in April of 1865. The new Congress is seated in December of 1865. And among the problems that that new Congress has to address is what to do with the former Confederacy and how to guarantee equal rights to this newly freed population of black men and women and children, four million people who have been enslaved up until the, the end of the war, really. So the 14th Amendment that they propose has many parts because 
They're trying to address a whole series of problems in a manner that will allow for the union to be reconstructed. So guaranteeing the equal protection of the laws to all people regardless of race, guaranteeing birthright citizenship to all people born in the United States, guaranteeing the due process of the law to all persons. These are all part of what Congress deems necessary for the safety and security of the new republic. But none of these things will make any sense unless the leaders of the former Confederacy are disqualified from holding office. Because otherwise, the same people that just waged a civil war, waged the war for secession and to defend the institution of slavery, will be returned to office and indeed to national office. So the disqualification clause, which is Section 3, its immediate purpose is to prevent those secessionists from returning to office. What were some of the major sticking points in the course of the debate over how to word this clause? What was initially proposed as the third section was a disenfranchisement provision. So the initial idea was, all right, how do we make sure that the South just doesn't return insurrectionists to power? Well, we'll deny the right to vote to anyone who participated in the Confederacy for three years. That was the initial Section 3. It was considered essentially too lenient and Hmm. also far too finite. And then finally, it punished people who were essentially coerced and conscripted into the army, into the into the Navy. Yeah. And it didn't hold accountable the leaders of the Confederacy who were actually dangerous. So when it got to the Senate, Section 3 was entirely rewritten. And partly because Congress had received a lot of petitions from hundreds, maybe even thousands of American citizens calling on Congress to do something more than just disenfranchise anyone who contributed to the Confederate cause, to do something more targeted and also stricter. A series of different revisions were proposed in the Senate. You could kind of go day by day. People are coming up with different ideas. And they say, first of all, you know, they kind of make all these arguments. They say, why are we punishing like the conscripted foot soldier? That's like, that's not, that's not really going to help. Like we, we would like people to vote, but we don't want them. We don't want people who have violated an oath to the Constitution. That is to say, not just a foot soldier, not just anybody, someone who had previously held some kind of an office. Those people specifically should be barred from returning for office and not just temporarily, but for life. So that's the version that ultimately the Senate passed and then the House concurred in. Eventually, Congress decides that ratifying the 14th Amendment will be a condition for reentering the Union. And so it's under those terms that the 14th Amendment is finally ratified. In what ways are Donald Trump and his supporters arguing that Section 3 doesn't apply to him? Trump's lawyers have a lot of junk arguments, honestly, and some of them are junkier than others. I think they have one fairly serious argument. But I kind of want to back up to say, to remind people, the reason this case exists is that Republicans in the Senate failed to do their constitutional duty and convict Donald Trump of impeachment in January of 2021. And I think that's really important to remember. The proper way the to deal with the insurrection on January 6th was indeed to impeach Donald Trump, which the House did, and then the Senate, by a very narrow margin, failed to reach the two-thirds majority rate. It has now come out in several memoirs that some of the, I believe it was 10 senators that were needed 
to convict Trump, were persuaded to vote against conviction because of threats against their families. And Mitch McConnell said, of course, at the time that he voted against convicting Trump of impeachment because he thought this was a matter for the criminal courts, the criminal prosecutions that are now proceeding very, very slowly are, you know, another way to confront the problem of a president who has engaged in insurrection. But this is not the best solution, right? Section 3 is not a great solution. And one of the reasons it's not a great solution is that there is very little law around it. It was was enforced consistently in the 1860s, to some degree in the 1870s. You can find cases into the 1880s and 1890s. But it then sort of disappeared from American law. So all of this quibbling can exist because this quibbling hasn't been resolved. Like there, there hasn't been a lot of quibbling before now. So from the vantage of the Trump side of this case, there are any number of ways to strike down the claim that Trump has disqualified himself. Um, one is to say there was no insurrection. Okay, they're not going to really be able to say that. Another is to say there was an insurrection, but Trump didn't engage in it or give comfort or aid to the insurrectionists or incite it. Another is to say there was an insurrection and maybe he engaged in it, but that hasn't been proven in a criminal court. Another is to say, okay, maybe there was an insurrection, maybe he even engaged in it. It doesn't matter that it wasn't proven in a criminal court, but the president is not covered by Section 3. Another is to say, okay, all those things might be true. The president is covered, but a presidential candidate is not covered by Section 3. So he can run. There's like a world in which they say he he's eligible to run, but he's not eligible to hold office if he is. Well, yeah, then it would you know, sort of kick win. it down the road. Like, let him yeah. win or lose, and then Congress can decide. So, because, again, like, nobody wants to decide. The Senate didn't want to decide. The Justice Department didn't even want to pursue criminal charges, right? The the Congress couldn't decide to hold a, a true inquiry. They had to, you know, an outside investigation of January 6th, right? Like there are a lot of failures to decide to take responsibility for holding Trump to account. We're at the past the three-year anniversary of January 6th. We're only now seeing the actual workings of holding Trump to account for January 6th. So, Jill, you've submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court laying out the historical context of Section 3. What motivated, you know, the, the brief in the first place? What inspired you to, to work on it? Yeah, so I'm the lead author on this brief that I wrote with David Blight, Drew Faust, and John Witt, good friends and distinguished historians. And I can't speak for all of us. I'll speak for myself here. You know, the court is interested in interpreting the Constitution by way of its original meaning, intention, and public understanding. And it happens that as much as I care about history, I disagree with that way of understanding the Constitution. But if that's the way the court's going to proceed, then it ought to have in hand good academic history accountable to evidence. And that's not generally what it uses in offering originalist interpretations. So we chose to write the amicus brief in order to provide, you know, a rich and accurate, accountable to the evidence account of the origins and the original intention of, the meaning of, and the public's understanding of Section 3. There really are no historians' briefs on the other side of this case, because the historical argument just doesn't fit the Trump side of this case. This court has made momentous decisions 
in the last few years, certainly in the last two decades, in the name of an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. And the only originalist interpretation of the Constitution available to them in this case is that Donald Trump cannot run for president of the United States. So if the court wants to subvert originalism, denounce originalism, defy it, renounce it, move beyond it, I would be thrilled. It is a bankrupt way of understanding the meaning of the law, of fundamental law. And I want I honestly just wanted to say, you know, if you want to live in a world where there are more guns than people in the United States, where children can't go to school without fear of mass shootings, because of what the justices on the Supreme Court believe was meaningful in 1787 and 1791, then face it, then look at this, look at this history. Then you explain to me how you stand up and say that section three does not matter to you. It's original meaning, it's original intention, the public's original understanding of it does not matter to you, but it matters to you for guns and abortion. The Political Scene from The New Yorker will be back in just a moment. You're saying that, like, the originalist argument of here is pretty clear and that the history is ironclad. But at the same time, you have Trump's legal team arguing that this idea of, you know, an officer of the United States, as it's specified in the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that officer of the United States actually doesn't apply to the president. From your research, I mean, why why is it clear to you that officer of the United States, that that also counts the president and the vice president? Yeah, so... Um During an early conversation in Congress about the language, the question was raised, well, an early draft specified the president and the vice president, and that was removed. And so the question was raised on the floor. Well, but why did we remove that? Like, shouldn't, aren't they, obviously they're included. Like, we wouldn't want someone to become president or vice president who had betrayed an oath to the Constitution. And then it was the explanation was offered, well, but they're already included, like they're encompassed in the language that we have here already. So it's just redundant. And you don't want to have a longer and redundant language in a piece of legal or constitutional text. And, you know, the guy who would ask the question was like, oh, okay, then that's fine. But I think that um, not as a matter of history, because the history makes clear that Section 3 was self-executing and intended to be self-executing, and the evidence that we present about that is the number of petitions that ex-Confederates filed to Congress in 1868 and 1869 saying, okay, I've been disqualified by Section 3, so could you please remove my disability because I would like to be able to run for dog catcher in Georgia or whatever. And just for our listeners, Um, can you define self-executing? So that's the idea that it doesn't take, you know, voters petitioning to get someone taken off of a ballot or a secretary of state making the decision to remove someone from the ballot. It's just you're you're disqualified. You just are. Right. If you, right. <laughs> the way if you were, you know, born in France yeah. or if you were 34, you're disqualified. You don't have to prove prove that. Someone could challenge it, um, but you don't have to. Uh, a secretary of state will remove you from the ballot if if it's clear that you were not born in the United States or under the American flag. The reason I say that's the strongest argument on the Trump side is simply that it's fairly terrifying to imagine such a thing being self-executing, right? Like, where's the due process? Where, Where's the presentation of evidence? Where's one's opportunity to say, no, I, I did not engage in an insurrection? 
So, I, I mean, I think as a matter of ongoing law and polit- our political life and our political arrangements in civil society, we should examine whether an amendment to Section 3 was would in fact be required. But that's not what it says now, right? Like, that is not what it is now. I don't like Section 3, but it is in the <laughs> Constitution, and it is our fundamental law. I also don't like the Electoral College. I think the Electoral College is a disaster. But I don't go outside and defy the Electoral College and just say, well, let's pretend it's not there, right? Like, this is what a Constitution is for. But I did forget one other um, in my list of the things that the Trump's lawyers will and have challenged was um, the idea that the section that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was only ever meant to apply to the Confederacy and not to future insurrections or insurrectionists. That's a question that we answered quite squarely. And I think it's, it's I found actually reading the congressional debates, letters to members of Congress, petitions by citizens and groups of citizens, really quite moving on, the, on this point that people had been through this tremendous, painful, exhausting, devastating, staggering set of losses and a war that cost 700,000 American lives. One of the signatories on our brief is, is Drew, my colleague, Drew Faust, who's the former president of Harvard. And her really beautiful book, This Republic of Suffering, is about the nature of that loss and what those kinds of losses did to American life, what that scale of death um, at the hands of fellow Americans meant in the context of a war of emancipation. Right? It's just, just, just the, the sort of moral and ethical burdens of that kind of suffering and sacrifice and the risk of it all being for nothing if Confederates returned to office or if future generations of Americans would suffer under repeated waves of insurrectionism, secessionism, disloyalty, the denial of the legitimacy of the Constitution and the Union, that they were writing something that would protect their descendants from the kind of suffering that they had endured. I I found that incredibly moving. I'm the lead author on our brief, and I really chose to put that front and center because the idea that this provision does not apply because it's old. Tyler, because it's old, when we are asked, when we are asked to believe that 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds cannot get abortions because of what people thought, what 55 men thought in 1787. But this, because it's old, doesn't matter anymore. This sends me off a constitutional cliff. I agree with you that I think um, it would, my guess is that they're going to try to avoid the insurrection question um, almost entirely since there's a whole separate case in D.C. to to determine whether Trump incited or participated in the January 6th insurrection. But I mean, how can you imagine them ruling if they're looking for a narrow way either out of this or um, a narrow way to to say that they agree with it? I confess I don't have that, oh, Gorsuch will say this and Sotomayor would want that. I'm I'm not that avid of a court watcher. Um, So I can really only speak in broad strokes such that assuming the good faith of justices who wish to not incite another civil war, their desire will be, again, to make, to really make the smallest decision that's possible for them. 
That is to say, to, 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 to make the decision of the least significance and implication. They are looking for a way out. Uh, I think there could be justices who believe constitutionally, absolutely, that Trump disqualified himself on January 6, 2021, and yet who will be daunted by fear of what a ruling to that effect would mean. I think the justices also understand the tragedy that would be a wholly partisan, a kind of six to three conservatives against liberals ruling. The partisanship of the Bush v. Gore decision was devastating uh, and I think haunts them all and should. It haunts the country. Um, so I think they, like everyone else who has been asked to hold Trump to account, wants someone else to do it. So they will send a message that it is really up to Congress to deal with this. And the way to do that is to lean on this, it's maybe not self-executing. And there's a case that they can use to that end. Um, there's the kind of common sense case, and they could say there's just really not enough law here. We don't think it would be good for it to be self-executing, and therefore it's not. I mean, I, I don't know how they turn that into an opinion, but I think think that's where they'll come down. I would be surprised if they were to embrace any of the truly nonsensical arguments like, oh, it was only for the Civil War. It's too old. It doesn't matter anymore. Or, oh, the officer language doesn't apply. Like, that's, I just, I can't. Or, my, favorite I think, one is, um, my favorite one is about the oath that Trump took. I'm oh, sure yeah, it's a different that. oath. It has a yeah, different verb. In, yeah, in Section 3, it's, yeah. you know, the oath is to support the Constitution of the United yeah. States, which is the oath that senators take. But, you know, for president, it's like protect and defend. Yeah. Right, um, so somehow fundamentally different. It would yeah. make Trump the only president ever, I think, who couldn't, who, who this wouldn't, you know, sort of, um, basically he would be the only president, I think, in history who would be immune if that were the case because every other president has held another office beforehand and had to right, take the support. Right, right. And that actually is where I've talked to I've talked to people who are court watchers and they think the court will choose the officer thing because it would seem to be likely to only ever apply to Trump that everyone else past and future running for president will have previously held a different office for which they had taken an oath to the constitution. You know, when you think about how Trump and his supporters have been talking about the implications of this case. I mean, basically the argument they're making is that taking Trump off the ballot is a form of disenfranchisement for Republicans. I'm wondering what you think about that, you know, this idea of, um, well, if you take him off the ballot and, you know, all of these Republicans can't vote for him, that that is, um, you know, kind of chipping away at democracy. And um, Yeah, yeah. The right to vote is not a right to vote for some guy. The yeah. right to vote is a right to vote. Like, you know, Lincoln did not appear on, on many ballots in 1860 because yeah. the South just didn't want him to be on the ballot. Like, we could disagree with that. <laughs> we could disagree with that. But people still have the right to vote. You don't have the right to vote for Donald Trump just because he wants to run for office. If he's disqualified, he's disqualified. It's not disenfranchisement. 
right? Like that's the that is the point. That was the that was the preferred outcome, so that people would still have the right to vote. I mean, I feel like part of the issue here is the timing, right? Like if the you know court had been faced with this question, you know, months before the primaries and the caucuses started, and you know Trump wasn't even formally on a ballot yet then I feel like that would be one thing, you know, this question of whether he's eligible to run again. But I do feel like it's difficult when, you know, people have voted for him in these early states. And then, you know, the court has said that they're trying to decide this case before Super Tuesday, before he's on all the ballots, basically. But yeah, um, yeah, it does seem like tricky territory. Right. It is. It's absolutely tricky territory. And it would be explosive and earth shattering. And it is sure it's fine for me to say Technically, it's not disenfranchisement, but people are going to experience it. People would experience it that way, right? They would believe it to be that. They would experience it as that. And that's not to be sneezed at. I don't mean to trivialize that. I think, you know, you're absolutely right to raise it. The constitutional argument remains sound. It is unaffected by that. Uh, There was a kind of great David French piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago. David French, a conservative commentator, legal commentator, in which he said, you know, people will say, Well, the Section 3 argument is a bad one because it will lead to political violence. Yes, constitutionally, it's correct. It's unassailable constitutionally. But the political consequences are so dire that it has to be avoided as an outcome. And the court will have to come up with a way uh, to to steer clear of the unassailable constitutional outcome. And French said, you know, I, I actually think the threat of political violence is why the court has to abide by the unassailable constitutional interpretation. Because you cannot avoid a constitutional claim with a pitchfork, that to succumb to that is to yield to insurrectionism itself as now a mode of lawmaking. And I thought that was extremely compelling. And for all my fear of what is not new political violence, but ongoing political violence? For all my fear of that, I think French is right. Capitulating to the fear of political violence is actually a way to promulgate a kind of political, a way to kind of encourage political violence, to submit to it, to yield to its inevitability. If I were on the court, that would give me a great deal of pause. It's interesting because I feel like last time you were you were on the show, you know, you were, you were talking about your concerns about political violence in general. I think that the way that Trump has avoided being held to account for January 6th thus far for three years has been because of a series of people's genuine fear of political violence directed against themselves, against their communities, against anyone, right? It doesn't, it's not a self-interested thing to fear political violence, right? It's a tragedy when it happens. You know, the country needs to move through this very tumultuous and terrifying moment into a new era a kind of reconstituted civil society. And how we get there is the question of our age. Thank you so much, Jill. All right, thanks a lot. Take care. Jill Lepore is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read her work at newyorker.com. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Julia Nutter with editing from Stephanie Karayuki. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>